0: we are back. It's been a little while since our last episode, so I wanted to take a moment to thank you all for listening. We've received a lot of great feedback on season one, and we're really excited to be back with more episodes for season two. To start this season, I wanted to bring you something special. So on today's episode, you will hear a conversation between me and my dad. My dad, Dr. Robert Belfer, is a pediatric emergency medicine physician, and as you'll hear in this episode, was a major influence in my decision to go into medicine. We talk about that decision, along with my dad's path to medicine, and his experience working in a chaotic, high-acuity pediatric emergency room. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Robert Belfer, my dad. Exploring the intersection of of medicine, medicine, sports, and pop culture, this is the Doctors Are People Too podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Josh Belfer. Welcome back to the Doctors Are People Too podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Robert Belfer, a pediatric emergency medicine doctor host of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine podcast, and he is currently sitting in my childhood bedroom turned office because he is my dad. Dad, welcome to the podcast.
1: Josh, a pleasure to uh, be on your podcast. I'll have to get you on mine soon too.
0: You know, I thought about including you in season one of the podcast. There were a few other, you know, more important names I wanted to try to get on first season, but I thought now that we're settled in, You know, I was looking for some guests, so I figured I'd bring you on at this point.
1: Well, I'm humbled. I thought I would be at least a season four or five uh, guest, so to be on season two, I am truly humbled and honored.
0: Well, it's my pleasure. I'm actually going to start this discussion by stealing a page from your playbook on the Chop Pen podcast, which if you're interested in pediatrics, interested in pediatric emergency medicine, I highly recommend the podcast. You start off with a number of different icebreakers for the guests that you have on. So I'm gonna steal one of the icebreakers from your podcast and ask you, what is the most proud that you've been in your career? What is the achievement that you're most proud of, the experience that you're most proud of as you look back at your
1: career thus far? Wow, uh, I, I thought uh, I asked my guests easy questions and when you get asked the same question personally, uh, it's it's a lot tougher. Uh, one achievement. Well, I think I'm going to list two. I'm going to list a general achievement first. uh, And that's when a critically ill patient comes into the ER. And fortunately or unfortunately, I've had many. And uh, we have to resuscitate. We work as a team with our nurses. We may or may not get a good outcome. It's the family parent saying thank you for everything you've done. And uh, again, when you have good outcomes, that thank you is great when you have bad outcomes, that thank you is a little bit perplexing, but uh, it's very grateful to, to be able to do what we do on a daily basis. Uh, the other thing which I think hits a little closer to home is, uh, is the fact that if you look at my division here at CHOP, Division of Emergency Medicine, we have over 50 plus attendings and I can probably count on one hand the number of my colleagues whose children went into medicine. I can count on a few fingers the ones who went into pediatrics, and I can probably count on one finger uh, the uh, my colleague whose child went into pediatric emergency medicine. So when you ask what I'm most proud of, Josh, I'm most proud of, of course, you and your brother and your sister, but uh, professionally. Uh, I would have to say I'm most proud of that someone, my child saw what I did for a career, a little motivation from mom, not really from me. Uh, I gave you guidance, but not necessarily pushed you down that path, but to have a child follow, not only into the same field medicine, but to the same subspecialty, pediatric emergency medicine. uh, I think that's what I'm most proud of. And uh, over the next few years, next few decades, I look forward to following your career closely uh, as you uh, start your attendingship shortly.
0: Well, I appreciate that. I know that my brother and sister will appreciate the shout out you gave them so as not to exclude them from this conversation. And uh, you're certainly winning some brownie points with the host already. But I want to start from the beginning. And we like to explore a path to medicine and how our guests ended up in medicine and in their specialty. You took a little bit, not much of an unconventional path, but a little bit of an unconventional path in that. As an undergraduate, you were actually at the Wharton Business School at University of Pennsylvania. Now, we see medical students, you know, when they go through college, maybe go a little bit into the humanities. I was a health and societies major focused on public health, but we typically don't see them go into business or finance in terms of their background going into med school. What led you to to that decision as you, you were looking at colleges and
1: started college? So actually, in high school, I knew I wanted to become a doctor. I had done some volunteer work at some local hospitals, uh, had a strong passion for what medicine or what, what I knew about medicine at the time. Uh, so when I applied to schools, uh, you know, University of Pennsylvania was sort of the top of that list. And uh, the other area of interest that I had, obviously I grew up, my, my dad was uh, you know, a self-employed business person and uh, was interested in business. Uh, the other thing was, Josh, uh, math, uh, math came pretty easy to me in high school. So I figured, let me sort of focus on math. Uh, and of course, at Wharton, it became finance, economics, and accounting, which came relatively easy to me. And then, as electives each semester of college, uh, while many of my classmates were taking what we would call gut courses—you know, easy courses—astrology, geology—I uh, would take chemistry, biology, organic chemistry, and physics. I would focus all my energy on those science courses. Like I said, the economics and the finance came relatively easy. And uh, again, junior, senior year, applied to medical school and used, I guess, in my medical school essay, sort of used a little bit of a business uh, approach to it uh, to write that essay. Uh, and then, like uh, as history shows, uh, got into medical school. And uh, now, actually, as a uh, attending here at CHOP, I am also uh, the physician advisor. Uh, involved in case management, insurance companies. Uh, so I do bring a little bit of a business acumen to my role here at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia.
0: Yeah, I think it's an interesting angle that that you continue to take advantage of, which is something that we, we don't see a lot in medical students and residents now, and that in order to get into medical school, a lot of people think you need to do the hard sciences, you need to do your extra sciences to really bolster that resume. But it's really a well-roundedness, I think, in, in terms of training, even before medical school, makes for a good physician. You mentioned some of the volunteer work that you did. Like you said, uh, your father, my grandfather, was was self-employed, not in medicine. Uh, my grandmother, your mother, was was a teacher, not in medicine. You have an older brother who didn't go into medicine. What were those influences that even interested you in medicine? You know, I, I of course had you. I have, you know, we have other people in the family that have you know ties to medicine now but you didn't really have that growing up in terms of your immediate family.
1: So what led you to explore the field of medicine? Sure. It's a a good question, Josh. I guess we'll go back many years. Uh, My dad, your grandfather, uh, had a luncheonette uh, in Newark, New Jersey, which was literally across the street from Newark Beth Israel Hospital. And as a elementary school student uh, working in the store, uh even at a young age was exposed to many doctors and nurses who on their breaks or after work would come into the luncheonette uh Zadie, our father your grandfather would speak with all these doctors and everything and i guess that was my first uh exposure uh to sort of medicine and uh well i'm not really sure didn't really like you said have other mentors or influencers in the medical field uh i think what i learned from uh both my parents, your grandparents, is helping people. Uh, In addition to being a businessman, uh, my dad always helped people in need, okay? They didn't have to ask, he sort of helped people. And we know our, uh, your grandmother, my mother, was a kindergarten teacher for over 30 years. Uh, She's fascinated, to this day, uh, many of her students reach out to her on Facebook and say the influence she had on them when they were kindergarten children is still with them today. So I think it's more helping people, uh, mm. a little bit of passion uh, about medicine and the sciences, uh, which led me to sort of pursue uh, the pre-med and then the uh, the medical school route into my current field.
0: I think that the theme of, of Bubby and Zadie, my grandparents, your parents, uh, is probably going to you know, hold steady as we continue the discussion, thinking about my siblings, my cousins, the amount of grandchildren that either went into the medical field or went into helping professions, a number of teachers and in, in a number of my cousins, my sister. And so I think that influence sort of you know holds st- true and steady as we continue to to shape our careers, so you go to medical school. At what point was, was pediatrics, and then you know pediatric emergency medicine and in interest? You you said you you thought medicine was the choice going in pretty early, but when did you sort of settle on that decision of, of what route to pursue?
1: Yeah, early on, uh, I thought pediatrics as a, as a area uh, would, would be what I wanted to go into uh, for a few reasons. Uh, Number one, uh, I like the spectrum of disease in pediatrics. Uh, Number two, uh, most pediatric patients don't do their bodies harm to get these diseases. Uh, They come down with them. Uh, They're not smokers for 30 years, bad eaters, et cetera. And uh, uh, and then thirdly, uh, even though some of my colleagues uh, avoid pediatrics for this reason, I like dealing with the parents. Uh, A lot of times we joke, Josh, that we say the parents are just another patient, that we have to deal with it. And I think, number one, at least in the current field that I'm in, that we're both in, I think if you listen to the parents close enough in the ER, you'll get the diagnosis many times. Uh, And I also like sort of speaking with the parents about, you know, what's going on with their child, answering any questions, and there are a lot of questions that parents have in the ER. So I think that uh, I sort of developed or, or like that forte of, Uh, dealing not only with our patient who's in front of us, but also with the uh, parents of the patients.
0: And as you look back at your career now in pediatrics and pediatric emergency medicine, are there other reasons now that you look back and if you, you know, we'll talk about how you mentor medical students, how you were a mentor to me, but when you talk to people about the field of pediatrics, pediatric emergency medicine, are there aspects of it that now looking back at your career? you realize our advantages to the field, things that you didn't necessarily anticipate going in you know, 30 years ago. And of course medicine has changed, but uh, aside from the patient family interactions, which is always going to hold steady because that's just the nature of what we do. Are there other things that contribute to, to your enjoyment within the field?
1: Yeah, I think our office uh, is the pediatric emergency department. And uh, I think one of the advantages of being in that type of office is who we work with. And I think pediatric nurses, pediatric techs, they're just nice people. Uh, They like children also. Uh, They like to work in a team setting. So uh, we call it work, going into work on a clinical shift. But I'm really going to see my work family. And that family consists of our nurses, our techs, our scribes, who are all love children. Obviously, they're all in that field. And uh, it's a great team environment to be in. So uh, looking back on it, I'm glad I chose pediatrics and obviously pediatric emergency medicine, not knowing that all of my professional colleagues in my office setting, the pediatric ER, would also be like-minded. Enjoy working with children, enjoy dealing with parents, uh, and enjoy that setting. One of the things I enjoy about
0: pediatric emergency medicine, now that I've almost done my fellowship and going into the real world, is just each encounter is an experience holds true i think within other fields of medicine but especially in pediatric emergency medicine you're not seeing most of the time not seeing well visits you're the parents and the child are there for a certain reason and that encounter leads to an experience as i've had the pleasure of, of listening to you lecture over the last you know 20 plus years down in florida some of the things that I enjoy hearing you talk most about are those experiences. Aside from the slides and the medical points and the pearls that you present, you like to look back at your experience in residency and fellowship and talk about some of those stories. So as you reflect back on residency and maybe fellowship stands out even more, what are some of the stories? What are some of those impactful moments that you look back on as shaping your career?
1: Wow. Uh, I guess, again, having... cared for thousands and thousands of patients, there's probably a few dozen who really stick out in my mind. And uh, fortunately or unfortunately, those are probably the ones who presented during my residency and fellowship critically ill. Uh, and hopefully we, meaning myself, our, my supervisors and, and the medical team caring for these children, had the wherewithal and the knowledge to, to successfully you know, make that child better. Uh, And if Josh, you talked about residency and fellowship, so I'm actually gonna talk about some diseases that fortunately uh, we see less and less of now. Uh, One example, bacterial meningitis. Uh, On a given night as a resident at uh, Children's National Medical Center in Washington, DC, we would admit two to four kids with true bacterial meningitis. Uh, We don't see that anymore. Uh, What are my remembrances of those children? Well, I remember doing the spinal tap, holding the uh, container to collect the spinal fluid. And as the first drops would come in, milky cloud looking spinal fluid. Once we collected a a tube or two of spinal fluid, I would tell the nurse who had the IV antibiotics hooked up to the IV, go ahead and push them. So we did see bacterial meningitis. We We treated it aggressively some patients had great outcomes, but some developed brain abscesses and had terrible outcomes. So for those trainees working today, uh, you know we don't see bacterial meningitis anymore, uh, which is good uh, due to the vaccines uh, that our research colleagues have developed. But uh, I remember to this day, that all those children who came in with that shrieking cry, uh, that cloudy spinal fluid, Uh, and the admission diagnosis of bacterial meningitis. One other diagnosis, Josh, that I'll I'll point out that uh, as you mentioned, I do lecture on, is a very tragic case or group of cases. And that's sudden infant death syndrome. Uh, I trained Josh when parents put their children to sleep, however they most felt comfortable. And many times that was prone on their belly because babies would sleep better. Well, we all know now, obviously, the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, recommendations, uh, putting babies to sleep on their back reduced the risk of sudden infant death syndrome dramatically. And Josh, it was probably, I would say, every other or every third Monday or every fourth Monday morning in the ER, where it's 7 a.m., start of shift, we would get a call from the EMS people saying in progress, uh, in transit with a two month old in CPR, cardiac arrest, doing CPR. And uh, again, these babies, you know, we tried to resuscitate them, unfortunately many of them unsuccessfully, and they ended up dying of sudden infant death syndrome. Fortunately, again, due to our colleagues in research, a quick maneuver, just putting the children to sleep on their back, dramatically reduced the incidence of sudden infant death syndrome, but I remember those calls uh, on those Monday mornings or any really day during the week, uh, early in the morning, uh, and remember the cries of their parents, most importantly, who came in the ER after having put their child, healthy child to sleep the night before, and now they're rushed to our ER with a baby who's getting CPR who dies minutes after Uh, they arrive uh, in the ER. Fortunately, uh, for both of those diagnoses, we rarely see them. And uh, I am glad that you and colleagues who are training now uh, early in their attendingship don't see them as much uh, because, again, the shrieks not only of the parents of SIDS uh, babies, but the shriek of those little young babies with bacterial meningitis still stand out in my ears to this day.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're, they're terrible cases, and that, that's what stands out when I hear you talk about your training is some of the really sad cases that, like you said, fortunately, through research, we've been able to, to lower the, that risk significantly. I can only think back to you know the word emotional trauma in terms of getting through residency and training and seeing so many difficult cases, seeing a lot of sad cases in the pediatric emergency medicine field. Who were your mentors as you went through residency? What was your relationship with your colleagues like? Uh, I know it in talking with you, it seems like it's a little bit different than it was when I went through it, uh, partially because of the work hours and the amount of time everyone's spending together. But when you think back to how you navigated those situations emotionally, socially, what was the relationships that,
1: that brought you through it? Right. Well, Josh, as you mentioned, wellness was not a big part of my training uh, like, like it is now, which uh, unfortunately it wasn't. But I actually had a personal social worker uh, before uh, I started uh, internship. Uh, I had a personal social worker who was invaluable, not only in the three years of residency, but my chief year and two years of fellowship. And even in my early attendingship, who I I met with pretty much on a daily basis. Uh, I did do overnight calls, so I uh, did, was not able to meet with this social worker. And Josh, you're, you're smiling. You know, this social worker was uh, your mom, my wife. So I married Gail uh, a few weeks before we started internship. She actually worked at Children's Nas- National Medical Center as a pediatric social worker. And uh, I think it was very important because she got to know not only the world of pediatric social worker at Children's National Medical Center, but she got to know all of my intern colleagues. Uh, And uh, I could tell you some of my colleagues whose spouses were not in the medical field uh, had difficult transitions to internship residency because all we talked about those three years pretty much is medicine. But Gail uh, got to meet all of my fellow interns and residents. She took care of some of the patients that my residents did and uh, as you know, Josh, I'm sure she was for you, but for me, she was the, uh, the best wellness coordinator, the best, one of the, if not the best, mentor, uh, shoulder to lean on uh, during my residency and fellowship. Professionally, uh, there's one person uh, who uh, was a uh, huge mentor to me, and that's my chairman uh, at Children's National Medical Center, Dr. Arnold Einhorn. May he rest in peace. Uh, A brilliant man, uh, took every resident under his wing. Uh, I fortunately formed a very close relationship with him, uh, learned an awful lot uh, from Dr. Einhorn and got the pleasure of spending an extra year uh, down at Children's National Medical Center as a chief resident uh, and that we worked very closely uh, with Dr. Einhorn during that year. And I am forever indebted uh, to Dr. Einhorn for his mentorship his leadership, uh, and his menschlichkeit, his, his, being a, a huge mentor to me. Uh, and uh, each day that I practice medicine, I try to live up to the standards that he had uh, as a practicing uh, pediatrician.
0: And we have talked about on this podcast, and we've talked at uh, when I come home about the importance of mentorship in medicine and I think at an early age, I remember hearing you talk about Dr. Einhorn and just the impact that he he made on you, both in training and even after training. And as I look back at my medical training thus far, the importance of just having people to look up to that have been there before to guide you, because it's a challenging road. Um, and that's what I want to ask you a little bit more about in, in terms of the differences. I I'm finishing up my fellowship training. I was in medical school about you know, six years ago at this point, compare. You were you know right alongside me as I went through medical school, residency. We you know talk about my experiences, talk about some of the challenging situations that I've been through in residency and fellowship. And fortunately, I've had you to to help guide me through them. But when you hear me talk about when you've met my friends that are in medical school and residency fellowship, talk about their experience. What are the similarities it, that you can connect back to your experience in your training? And what are those things that really stand out as being different now in medical training as compared to when you went through it?
1: Yeah, I think the similarities, Josh, are uh, that we are in a caring profession and patients come to us in the ER. Obviously, they don't know who they're seeing. They come to us to see us there uh, and they want our assistance. Uh, so not that much has changed, actually, as far as our day-to-day job. In other words, taking care of sick and injured patients, uh, resources I think are comparable. I mean, we both work with excellent nurses, excellent techs, excellent supporting systems. Uh, I think the big difference is, uh, sort of this wellness burnout thing. Uh, and, uh, Josh, you'll ask scale. I mean, we used to do uh, as residents, you know, 36 plus hour overnight calls. And uh, we were young. So if we get a few extra hours of sleep, we sort of had a free day the next day. Uh, and I think that has changed dramatically for the good. In other words, shorter shifts, no more of these 36 hour calls. And again, I think the researchers have shown that physicians don't work as well an hour 32 33 34 like they do in the first eight or nine hours of a shift so i think the emphasis on wellness uh is huge today and we didn't have that before uh, but i think the type of patients uh the uh ability or uh, to have good mentors guide you because uh, as you know josh this is not like a uh, law school where you go to school for a few years or business school, you go for a few years and you're out, out in, in the workforce with us, we're training and training and training. There's a lot of delayed gratification. And, uh, I think again, another similarity is just like I talked about, uh, my personal social worker, uh, you know, having not only close friends, but life partners. And in, in your case, obviously are your wife and our daughter-in-law Ashlyn who, uh, if josh didn't mention is also a pediatric resident to sort of understand the day in and day out uh routines uh of being in the medical profession many times people not in the medical profession don't really understand what we go through uh so it's good to have people uh who are sort of in the same field or aligned with the medical field uh from a wellness perspective
0: and i agree i'm a big proponent of wellness I want to push back a little bit on what you said, and sort of question. When I look back, I think the natural tendency is to say, "Oh, you know my generation has it better. And in a lot of respects, we do. You know the advances in medical, technology, the advances in diagnosis, the treatment like we've already talked about. But I look back at your training and hearing about your training, and you know the little question in the back of my mind is, you know, are the generation of physicians that are being produced now? ever going to be as experienced or as smart as the generation of the, you know, sort of the baby boomer generation that went through. Now, a lot of that, I think back to, you know, duty hours, which like you mentioned and research has shown it is much better for doctors not to be working 36 hours. It was unsafe. And, you know, even we we talked about the other day, me and you, how your first week of fellowship, you were as a first year fellow alone in the pediatric emergency room. And so on one side, in terms of patient safety and care, it is much better now. That there's a lot more supervision. There are a lot more rules in place to protect the patient and to, you know, protect the physician. But then I think the other side of it being that when you were doing your thirty six hour calls, you know, you were seeing every patient that comes in. I do my eight hour shift. I maybe work four shifts a week, you know, which thirty two hours a week. Those rest of the hours, maybe I'm hearing about some of the cases, but that's, you know, a huge majority of the week of patients coming into the emergency room that I never see that I will never learn from. And it it was like that in pediatric residency. You know, how am I supposed to put those two together in terms of all the patients I'm missing out on because I do have duty hour restrictions?
1: Yeah. So just for clarification, those 36 hours were sort of like during residency when we were on the floor. Uh, We didn't do 36 hour ER shifts. Uh, So this is what I would say. And I'll use the example again of meningitis. When I trained uh, as a resident, as a fellow, if you thought about doing a spinal tap on a patient, you thought they may have meningitis, you know what we said, Josh? We said, don't think anymore. Just do the spinal tap, okay? And now I train medical students, residents, and fellows, and when they say that meningitis may be in the differential diagnosis, I say you know, why? Have have you seen any cases of that? And I say, let's sort of kick the can down the road and think of some other things or give the antipyretic, the anti-fever medicine time to work to reassess them because meningitis is so rare. The point I'm getting at is it was easy for me to perform that spinal tap. But for you now, due to the fact that we've, you know, have cures for for so many of these diseases, for meningitis specifically, you're looking for the needle in a haystack. Okay. And you don't want to miss any cases because now compared to back in the day, the medical legal environment is a lot different. Okay. So we, we practice defensive medicine, uh, a a lot more. We we may do more tests, uh, a lot more because we practice defensive medicine. So those are just some of the challenges that we didn't really experience back in the day that you're going to experience. Uh, and the other thing, especially in, in pediatric emergency medicine, uh, our neonatal colleagues and surgical colleagues are saving, uh, resuscitating so many of these fragile children who become tech-dependent. I would also mention our cardiologists, you know, uh, so uh, at a place like Children's Hospital, Philadelphia, what I would consider a quaternary uh, children's uh, hospital, you're gonna see many, many tech-dependent children, Uh, children who didn't survive 20, 30 years ago, who are now surviving. And I think the complexity uh, that they add, fortunately we have great EMR. So we're able to look back and see all the records uh, at a fingertip, but uh, we had complex patients, Josh, back uh, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, But I think the increasing number of complex, uh, medically challenging, uh, technology-dependent children uh, is is a, a big challenge uh, for, for practitioners today, whereas we saw what I would consider more bread-and-butter uh, pediatric emergency cases. Very sick children, uh, but more bread-and-butter without the complexity uh, that we see today. And again, a credit to our colleagues who uh, are, are able to have these children with, whether it's cardiac, pulmonary, or, or other conditions, uh, excellent treatment, allow them to survive uh, outside the, the one or two year period of life.
0: The meningitis example, which we brought up a number of times, I think is a good analogy, a good you know, sort of, I don't know exactly what the word is in terms of what it was like for you during training and, and for years after and what it's like for me in terms of that we don't see it that much. But I wonder, another aspect of it is kind of that gut feeling you know, you've seen a lot of kids with bacterial meningitis. I imagine when you see certain kids in your pediatric emergency room now, you look back at those experiences and leads to a little bit of a gut feeling. Yes, you're going to do the testing, you're going to see the results, but, you know, maybe in the back of your mind and, and and in your gut, you could say, oh, this kid reminds me of those that did have bacterial meningitis. I don't have that luxury when it comes to certain diagnoses. The, the my physicians that trained with me don't, and so I wonder how that's going to impact us in terms of our, our gut feeling for certain diagnoses. Bacterial meningitis is, you know, still going to be around, still going to be it's going to be much rarer, fortunately. But you know, how do I put those two together in terms of I'm trying to use my gut to to give me an inclination that a kid is sick with something that maybe I've never even seen before, but I've read in the textbook and heard stories about but never actually seen in practice.
1: Right, and uh, th- that that's a learned skill. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about sort of clinical gestalt in a second. Uh, I think what your generation, I guess, uh, of uh, physicians have now that we did not have, and I'm not saying it replaces your gut feeling or clinical gestalt, is pathways or protocols. Uh, and uh, shop, as an example, has, you know, dozens and dozens of uh, pathways, uh, especially for emergency department care. And uh, I think using pathways in combination with clinical gestalt uh, is the way to go. Uh, In other words, I don't want you, and I've talked to you about this, I don't want your colleagues to practice what we call pathway medicine, okay, understand the pathway understand why we use the pathway, use it as a reference or a resource, but also look at the patient in front of you. Okay. Because not all patients fit a specific pathway. Uh, and again, early in your training, you may have to rely on colleagues, some of your more senior physicians. Hey, this, this child, uh, something bothers me about it. Will you take a look? And even though you have your own team or your own area in the ER, you know, here's some advice to you, Josh, feel free, to ask one of your colleagues in one of the uh, the other teams in the ER, hey, come take a look at this child. It's not going to be that many patients, uh, a shift, maybe one, maybe two, maybe zero. Uh, but use the the pathways, uh, which are very, very helpful and actually available to all your, re- all your listeners, uh, in addition to clinical gestalt, which over time you're going to develop. Josh, I've seen tens of thousands of patients. You've seen a small fraction of those. Uh, In 20, 30 years, you'll hopefully uh, have the same number or exceed the number of patients that I've seen. But uh, not only me personally, uh, but the literature that I review, the colleagues that I have on my CHOP PEM podcast, uh, the studies that we review all state that clinical gestalt, clinical experience, gut feelings uh, may be as good as some of the testing that your generation performs Uh, on a day in and day out basis in the ER.
0: I think it's kind of, it's funny, even silly, kind of thinking about it that here in medicine, we're saying the importance of actually examining the patients and looking at the patients. But, you know, students are coming up now where they have ultrasound that readily accessible ultrasound, you know, we're going to see continue to see clinical prediction rules, the incorporation of our EMR to predict things or being able to flag things that maybe we're not going to be able to pick up or maybe earlier than we're going to be able to pick up. You know, what do you tell those students and those, you know, early in their career physicians that say, you know, what am I going to do? Put a stethoscope on the patient and and listen to the patient. Let me put my ultrasound probe on. Let me look at the vitals. Let me plug it into my prediction rule online on my calculator that's going to put all the variables in for me and tell me whether the child has sepsis or not. You know, how how do you make those students believe in you know, the art of medicine as opposed to just the strict science and prediction of it.
1: Right. Uh, well, I'm going to go out on a little bit of a, uh, a reach here. Uh, some medical schools in the area, uh, years ago, they gave stethoscopes to all the incoming medical students. And Josh, as you alluded to, now they're getting the portable ultrasound machine. Uh, and I think that's the future. Uh, not necessarily just the ultrasound, but, you know, technology. And uh, I think, yeah, the ultrasound, the portable ultrasound may be as good, if not better, than a stethoscope. Uh, I can't really remember in the last few years, uh, outside of hearing wheezing, uh, when a stethoscope really helped me or really changed the diagnosis. I still wear it around my neck when I walk in to see the patients. Uh, There is some value to it. But I think uh, understanding uh, what this other technology can do. Uh, And again, I'm not saying relying on technology. You still need, like you said, you have the patient in front of you. You still need to think. Uh, And fortunately or unfortunately, you have all this technology uh, at your disposal. But uh, even today, Josh, there is definitely overutilization of of this technology, whether it's lab testing, imaging, things like that. So uh, I still think what hasn't changed over the years and should not change is that happy medium, that sweet spot of using your history and physical skills, listening to the parent, and then using some of the technology. If it's POCUS in your case, using that, uh, other imaging, specific lab findings, knowing your pretest probability of those lab findings. But as you know, Josh, we have some doctors who like to, or who are testers and who are not testers. And uh, I I think if you use your bedside skills, good history, good physical, uh, you can come up with many diagnoses that way, which can be uh, complemented with the use of imaging and/or lab studies.
0: I think it's great advice, and you serve as a mentor and you give a lot of advice. You know, not just to me and my wife and my cousin, who, whose residency as well, but serving as mentors to to residents and students through Penn Med and other programs that rotate through your hospital for, let's say for medical students, you know, they want to go into pediatrics They're maybe a third or fourth year starting to do their rotations and, you know, do their applications to residency. What's some of the advice that, that you tend to give when you speak with them?
1: Sure. I mean, the general advice is you're going to have this career for decades, two, three, four decades. So don't worry about the extra years of training. Let's say if you want to go into fellowship, and this is for any field. Uh, because again, you want to go to, into a field that you love. Uh, and you're going to do it for 20, 30 years. So the extra year of training or extra few years in training should not uh, dissuade you uh, from going into that field. Uh, From a pediatric standpoint, uh, kids are awesome. We see a wide range from from newborns to up to 18, some institutions up to 21 years of age. Uh, And uh, the breadth uh, of the diseases that we see fascinates me. Uh, Again, if you listen to uh, my, my podcast, Uh, I mean, you could have surgical cases. You could have neurologic cases. Uh, I mean, the spectrum of disease in pediatrics is fascinating. Uh, And like I mentioned before, uh, medicine is a team. Uh, And I think in pediatrics, especially our field, Josh, pediatric emergency, that teamwork uh, feeling uh, is a great feeling to have uh, when you, quote, show up for work.
0: All right. Let's talk about... Me going into medicine for a few minutes here. Week two weeks before I started college at Penn, I was scheduled to take, I think, three, you know, social related classes and econ 101. At that point, you and mom sat me down and said, Oh, maybe maybe consider science. You know, I had at that point really Never thought deeply about what I wanted to do. I figured like a lot of other college students, you take all different types of classes, you see what sticks, you see what you're interested in. And for a while there, it wasn't really, you know, there was no push for me to go into medicine. I'll uh, I'll pull one of your strategies and I've told the beginning of this story. Let's have you
1: finish it. What do you remember in terms of when I started college? Yeah, I think it was early August at the Jersey Shore. The sun was setting, it was about 5, 5.30 at night. And uh, my wife, your mom turned to me, you know, why are you so negative about medicine? I said, because every one of my colleagues is negative about medicine. We don't want our children to follow the same path. So Gail said, well, instead of being negative, don't be positive, but at least be neutral. So I gave you the neutral thing. I like the field. It's a long ride. And uh, then, of course, I think mom talked to you a little bit more after I left the beach. And the next thing I knew, uh, econ had been re- been replaced by chemistry during your freshman year. Uh, so, again, just like, you know, my parents, they didn't really push us into any field. I didn't want to be the overbearing physician parent. Uh, I was actually being like the typical physician parent. And most physicians, like I said, do not want their child to go into medicine for some of the reasons we talked about. But once again, she's always right. Mom was right. And uh, by me being neutral, that was enough of a nudge uh, for you to say, let me give it a try. And uh, again, I'll pass pass the baton back to you. Chemistry became physics. Physics became orgo. And uh, the rest is history, although a, a brief history. Brief history. But yeah, I mean, I...
0: Again, I was never really pushed, and a lot of people do ask because now, especially that I'm going into pediatric emergency medicine and about to graduate fellowship, they say, "Oh, your dad did it. You must have just wanted to do it. They must have, you know, said that you should do it or pushed you to it." And really, that wasn't the experience. I think what I was pushed to by, you know, by by Bobby, by Zadie, by my grandparents, by you guys was, you know, do something that's going to help people, and those were the values that were instilled in me. And when I thought about it, then you know, medicine was. For a lot of the reasons that we've talked about already, was the natural desire in terms of my career path. It was something that was challenging, something that was going to, you know, test my my ability to to deal with pressure, to test my ability to learn a highly intellectually stimulating environment, and then it was something obviously that you help people in, um, and yeah. So we started with chemistry, which you know after that first semester you know i thought maybe it was my grades that was going to prevent me from going into medicine but you know i stuck to it and then a few years later first day of second semester of senior year got the acceptance from Robert Wood Johnson Medical School where i ended up going now when i went to medical school i had a feeling and really when i went through college and thought more about medicine i always thought pediatrics was going to be the right i was a camp counselor growing up two younger siblings a lot of cousins uh, I enjoyed working with children for a lot of the reasons that we've talked about. Did you have a sense that always, always always going to go into pediatrics and maybe even into pediatric emergency medicine or, you know, was there ever any time that you sat back and said, Oh, maybe I should, you know, push him to expand his horizons and his interests a little bit?
1: Yeah, no, uh, I, uh, I wanted you to choose, choose the path that, that you wanted to, obviously, in medicine, we have a lot of different fields to go into. Uh, obviously I brought home, forget HIPAA, but I, I brought home anecdotes and stories, uh, of different patients, which, you know, may have swayed you subconsciously. I don't know, but, uh, no, like, like I mentioned before, I, I think you need to find your own pathway in medicine as far as what field. And, uh, uh, when you said pediatrics first, I was saying, cool, that's pretty neat because like at least will be, we'll be in the same specialty of pediatrics, Uh, And then as you were doing uh, residency uh, at Cone Children's Hospital uh, out in Queens, New York, uh, you know, you sort of really liked the ER rotations. You had some really good mentors there. And, uh, you you know, I'm thinking I turned to Gail. I said, you know, he may want to do additional training uh, in the field that I'm doing at. So, again, was very, very happy. And uh, obviously, with a few months to go, Josh, in your fellowship. Uh, glad that you're joining what I would call a growing, but a, a small uh, specialty in pediatrics, and that's pediatric emergency medicine. Uh, very close-knit, uh, excellent colleagues, great collaborators, just good people, smart people uh, who, uh, who like to work hard uh, and also like to enjoy themselves. I'm very excited
0: to be joining the group down in Philadelphia. For the last couple minutes, because I know you need to go walk my nephew and take him to the park. Let's do a couple quick hit questions. One of the other icebreakers you use on your podcast is you ask your guests what their favorite disease to diagnose is. What are some of the ones that 30 years ago you enjoyed diagnosing or that you you felt satisfaction in diagnosing? And what are the, the couple now that you enjoy
1: to diagnose in the pediatric emergency room? Sure, I enjoy diseases that we can diagnose by doing a history, physical exam, and labs and or x-rays corroborate the diagnosis, but don't make the diagnosis. So first and foremost, uh, back in the day, even today, Kawasaki syndrome, a clinical diagnosis. You could even argue MISC. I know we have obviously a two-tiered approach for labs, but uh, sort of a clinical diagnosis. Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So a number of those cases, again, if you wait for your titers, the patient may be dead. So you have to make that diagnosis based on clinical grounds. So uh, the ones that don't need labs or x-rays, uh, the ones that need your brain, uh, need a good history and a good examination uh, are the ones that uh, are my favorite diseases.
0: As emergency medicine doctors, we kind of pride ourselves that not much gets our heart rate up, that we're able to stay cool under pressure, you know, calm under the, the chaos of the emergency room, of the trauma bay of resuscitation, What are those things in the ER that do get your heart rate up? You hear something coming in, or you hear a nurse, you know, triage nurse grab you to come see a patient in the trauma bay? What are those things that really, you know, get your heartbeat going? Sure. And
1: uh, we uh, I lecture on this, and I've seen a a dozen or so cases in my career. And that's a a specific infectious disease, uh, meningococcemia. Uh, Seen, like I said, about a dozen or so cases, if not more in my career and uh, a terrible uh, disease. Uh, Fortunately, it's decreasing. uh, In the most fulminant form, Uh, prognostically, children have a very high morbidity and mortality. So uh, if you see a child ill-appearing, flu-like illness with a purpuric petechia-like rash in the ER, all hands on deck, full resuscitation, try everything you can. But in those cases, as you mentioned, Josh, the heart rate does go up a little bit, uh, but hopefully the calmness uh, and the, and the thinking uh, is able to continue in in the face of a critically ill uh, child with presumed uh, meningococcemia.
0: And we'll finish up on this, you know, podcasting is your more recent evolution over the last couple of years. And again, the Choppen podcast for uh, all of you on whatever modality, you get your podcast. you should subscribe and listen. But what do the next 15, 20 years of your career look like? And, you know, uh, I'm going to imagine you're going to say hopefully soon retired and spending time with your, your soon to be multiple grandchildren and time down the Jersey shore. But, you know, academically, clinically, in terms of where you continue to leave your mark in medicine, where do you see that?
1: Yeah. And I think I started that transition, Josh, a few years ago with the podcast. Uh, we, uh, we started the chop pen podcast in the middle of COVID. And, uh, one of the reasons, actually the major reason to do the podcast was to give back to the field. Uh, we frequently work with fellows in residents uh, in the ER, uh, occasionally with attendings and obviously chop and our field has so many smart people in the field of pediatric emergency medicine. So the genesis behind the podcast was to interview my colleagues, okay, or specialists in the field of pediatric emergency medicine or other specialties, not only locally, but regionally and nationally, even internationally and ask them questions that even I had questions about. Okay, what's the current, how do you treat this? What's the current research? What's the future of this disease? So uh, I hope that by me initiating the podcast, it sort of gives back to the medical students, residents, fellows, junior attendings, even senior attendings uh, give some education in an uh, informative way, uh, but also with a little bit of entertainment. Uh, we, 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 have, we keep it serious, but we make it entertaining. Uh, and I think I, I really enjoy doing it, not only being able to meet or converse uh, with such smart people, but to learn what fascinating things they're doing to move the field of pediatrics and especially pediatric emergency medicine forward.
0: Awesome. Well, Dad, this has been fun. It's been fun hearing a few more stories that I haven't heard before in terms of your journey through medicine. And, uh, you know, say hi to mom for me. And uh, hopefully come August, September, once I'm down in Philly, maybe do a couple podcasts in person.
1: Absolutely. Josh, thanks for having me on. Sounds good. Thanks,
0: Dad. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Doctors Are People Two podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to share it with your friends and family. Follow us on our Instagram page at Doctors or People 2 Podcast. Do you have a question or comment on the show? Maybe a guest recommendation? Direct message us on our Instagram page. Until next time, this has been the Doctors or People 2 Podcast. Take care.